Hello, everybody, and welcome to World of Basketball. I am Fran Frischella, and uh, we come to you today bringing you a little bit of more basketball from a different part of the globe, and we go down under, as we have done a couple times during World of Basketball, and uh, we've interviewed Lauren Jackson, one of the greatest women's players ever, of course, the great Andrew Gaze, who was not only a great Aussie five-time Olympian, but also a member of Seton Hall University and uh, P.J. Cornelissimo's team that went to the Final Four. And today we have the commissioner of the NBL, the Australian Pro League, uh, Jeremy Lolliger, to talk uh, Australian basketball, but also to give us a little insight into a couple young men who will go in the first round. Uh, of the NBA draft, two Americans who decided not to go to college, but to go spend a year in the Australian league uh, in a program called uh, Next Stars, which uh, uh, gives the young men an opportunity to bypass college, turn pro, get themselves ready for the NBA draft. And LaMelo Ball and RJ Hampton have certainly done that. So Jeremy takes you inside those decisions about uh, those two young men and also the league itself and where it's going, where it's heading. So I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, somebody who's very excited about Jeremy Lawliger talking NBL basketball is my partner, Chris Tyler, uh, the thunder from down under. And uh, <laughs> Chris, I know, I know you, uh, you, you know, uh, you know a little bit about Jeremy Lawliger and Aussie basketball. Yeah. Jeremy has been fantastic for Australian basketball since you know, coming into the NBL five, 10 years ago, he's really transformed the sport because before he came in, the NBL was really struggling. It had its heyday in the late 80s, in the 1990s as well. Since then, it's really been struggling. A lot of teams haven't been able to, you know, keep um, financially stable. A lot of teams have, have folded and become defunct. Now, as we saw, we've been bringing in guys like RJ Hampton, LaMelo Ball, all these young kids who are choosing the NBL instead of going to college. And that's huge for the NBL. And we're hoping that that continues with their next stars program. So we'll see how it goes, but Jeremy's certainly doing something right over there. Well, he is because LaMelo ball is arguably uh, one of the top three or four players in this draft. And RJ Hampton, a kid from Dallas, Texas, although he's been fluctuating up and down the mock drafts, he's, He's it's like he's on an elevator. He's he's dizzy, actually, from look, reading all these different mock drafts. But uh, I have been told that there are a number of teams that like him in that 9, 10, 11 range. I personally, although I don't do a mock draft, I think RJ's long term NBA future is very, very bright. He's a tremendous athlete. And I might as well give you a breakdown, Chris, of all three guys, because the third guy that we need to talk about is Josh Green, who's an Aussie who. Uh, spent his high school years here and uh, one year at Arizona. But let me tell you about RJ Hampton and what I see. Okay. At six foot five. And I watched this kid probably since his freshman year of high school here in Dallas. Uh, he's an NBA athlete. He's a wing player. Um, you know, he played this year for the New Zealand breakers. Uh, I thought he really matured in his game on the court. He only played a handful of games, probably half the season before and injuries curtailed this, this one year. He went back to the States uh, in midwinter. But uh, he is absolutely an above-average NBA athlete. He's got the size for the wing position. His jump shot is a work in progress, but not broken. And uh, the thing that impressed me about RJ as a kid who had everything sort of catered to him in high school and grassroots is 
He looked to be a good teammate on the court. He moved the ball. He played some point guard. He can play off the ball. And uh, if the intel checks out about his background, which all teams do, I think RJ's got a very bright future in the league. And I do think he's a, a guy that can be an NBA starter and be a good NBA player. So uh, I think he helped himself. Lamelo Ball, I mean, hey, he's been around the world already, right? Uh, he, he won a state title in California. His father took him out of high school and sent him to Lithuania. That was a uh, uh, traveling circus. But, uh, you know, and then this past season he spent the year with, uh, how do I say it now, Illawarra? Illawarra Hawks, yeah. Illawarra Hawks, right, which is kind of a – Kind of an out-of-the-way kind of place compared Very to Sydney so. and Melbourne, right? Don't get many tourists going to Illawarra. <laughs> I got it. Got it. So he concentrated on basketball for the half a year that he was there. And again, uh, supposedly a good teammate, worked hard, basketball junkie. Um, you know, LaMelo's been – they've got him going number one, two, three. You know, I personally think while he's a brilliant passer and has tremendous size for the point guard spot, I worry about his shooting. Uh, which unlike R.J. Hampton, I think his technique and form has to be overhauled dramatically. Uh, and he's not a great athlete as terms of run and jump, but no more so an underrated athlete than, say, a Steph Curry or a Steve Nash. So uh, Lamelo's more than athletic to be a, a really good player in the league. But I think the shooting's an issue. And then a guy I know you want me to talk about because he really is kin to you, as we say, uh, as a fellow Aussie, is Josh Green, who I got to know as a high school freshman on the Under Armour circuit. And, uh, you know, some teams have Josh slated as a first-round pick, others not as much. But uh, I do think as he turns 20 here in November, two days before the draft actually, that at 6'6", uh, 210 pounds, 6'10", wingspan, that he's an ideal two-guard. I think he can be a good NBA player. Uh, maybe a starter, certainly definitely in the rotation for somebody down the road. He's got what we call three and D potential. And uh, I like him as a young man. Uh, I think he's got a good head on his shoulders, good family. And I think Josh Green's going to be a good NBA player. And you notice I didn't say star, all-star, but here's what I'll tell you, Mr. Tyler. If you are a good NBA player and you play 10 years in the NBA, you're pretty much set for life. Oh, yeah. You know, you're pretty much set for life. You know, you could make upwards of $50 million or more. and uh, That's a good living. Maybe, that's a sure. pretty good living. So I think Josh is going to be a good player. And maybe better than that. I do think he can project as a starter. Um, but he's got a lot of upside, a lot of potential. And um, I happen to like him as a kid. Played with Nico Mannion, you know, on that Arizona team this year that had three freshman starters. So uh, there you go. Josh Green, the Aussie who uh, – I know a lot of teams are high on, and uh, you know I, I think also from your standpoint and mine, we're going to see him play for the Boomers here in short order, and be a member of the Australian national team and probably play in a handful of Olympics. So the Boomers are going to be we, very fun to watch. We've got a lot of good young talent in that team. We'll hopefully do some damage. We haven't won a, a medal in a long, long time. We need to get that. Uh, you know, we need to get something. We, we need to get something for all this uh, success that we've seen Australians coming over and, and dominating in the NBA. So hopefully something happens on the world stage there. But these breakdowns, man, we're going to be hearing a lot more of those breakdowns from you over the next uh, couple of months or in the next month in the lead up to the NBA draft. And you're doing a lot of stuff on SiriusXM NBA Radio as well. Every Wednesday night from 7 to 10 Eastern, uh, you know, Chris Patola, uh, 
Amin El Hassan and myself, we give you three hours of draft stuff. And uh, what's really fun about it is because, you know, I'm a draft Nick and uh, uh, it's something I love to do. I've always, you know, I've always I've evaluated talent for 40 years as a college coach and, you know, NBA draft analyst at times. But Amin brings us inside the draft room. Uh, from the front office perspective, Chris knows these players from covering them during the college season. So we love the show. We'll do it right up until November 18th, uh, every Wednesday night. And uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, we'll keep doing it. And by the way, uh, if you like what we're doing on world of basketball, uh, subscribe to our podcast. We are on Apple. We are on S- Sirius XM NBA radio. We're on Dan Patrick radio. What else? I don't want to miss anything. Pandora. You can listen on the SiriusXM app, Stitcher, pretty much wherever you get your podcast. We're on. We're everywhere, man. Well, wherever you go and get it, you know, give us a give us a listen. Give subscribe. Give us a give us high marks so we can keep bringing this. I think those of you out there know how much I love international basketball, and uh, we keep taking you around different corners of the world. So, uh, uh, you know, it's something that, you know, I love doing. I know my partner, Chris Tyler, does as well. So with that, let's go down under to the NBL commissioner, Jeremy Lolliger, who will give us a great in, some great insight on Australian basketball. Jeremy, we got to know each other a couple of years ago at the Nike Hoop Summit, have stayed in touch since. And uh, first question I have is what's going on down at the NBL Uh we're all dealing with the pandemic around the world. I understand that you've pushed the start date to the league back. Just give me an update on what's going on NBL-wise. Yeah, thanks for having me, Fran, firstly. And it's, it's great to be in touch again and look like, like everyone around the world. We're in the throes of uncertainty in terms of what coronavirus is going to mean for the league and for our season. As you mentioned, we've pushed our season back. We were, or well, typically we started beginning of October, and we run over the two-year period, Um, whereas this year we've had to push back until the middle of January at the earliest. Um, We initially pushed back until the beginning of December, and we were reasonably confident that we could deliver upon that, but we've had to push back until January, basically to ensure the likelihood of us getting fans in venue. And look, our, our league is great. The quality of basketball is fantastic, but in terms of the Australian sporting culture, we're, we're not as big as our big indigenous football codes over here that enjoy multi-billions of dollars of TV rights fees. And so um, we are still very much dependent, particularly the clubs, on generating revenues from getting fans into stadiums and bums on seats. So we, we had to maximise our potential to be able to do that. How, uh, given that we're all going through the same thing right now, the NBA, college basketball here in the States, leagues in Europe, how confident are you in the protocols that you'll set up, uh, how, in other words, you're you're on another part of the world than we are. You're going into your summer, I believe, right? That's right. We, we're typically a summer sport, and and we're hoping that the impact of coronavirus will be lessened as a result of it being summer, and also the fact that we've had a number of major professional sporting leagues who have gone through the winter and had to, you know, activate things like short-term hubs or multiple hubs, and we can learn a lot from them, but also. To put it in perspective, Australia's been, um, I won't say it's been less impacted than many other parts of the world. It's been severely impacted from an economic sense, but largely because of the response of government being very decisive and very severe. Um, And so the numbers are, are not comparable to the US or parts of Europe where 
you know, where the other ba- major basketball leagues of the world have been impacted. Um, but we are very conservative here. And at the moment, basically, the rest of the country is open for business. And Melbourne, which is where the NBL headquarters is located, is still in uh, a state of, of somewhat lockdown because we're still recording you know, somewhere in the vicinity of 12, 13 new cases a day. It's not the kind of numbers that you're talking about in the rest of the world, but we really want to nip it in the bud and just see the back of it. Um, so I, I actually think we're in a pretty good position in terms of being attractive to players from all around the world, wanting somewhere safe to play. If you're looking at January of 2020, uh, 2021 rather, um, in, in all likelihood, we're largely going to have seen the back of it and people are going to be looking for somewhere safe to play and somewhere where they know the whole season will be uh, very likely acquitted. And so the the hope is no bubbles, but to get fans back in the stands because of the revenue generated that you need. Much much like I think Adam Silver has pointed out here in this last week that the NBA may not start till January or February in part because they want to see if they can get fans back in the stands. So sounds like bubble. Yeah. Bubbles out, I mean, at least for now? No, I, I wouldn't say the bubble was out because the reality is we do need a contingency plan. We've all seen the coronavirus can flare up very quickly at any point in time, and we don't know when a vaccine is going to be um, passed for sort of public consumption. And so we need a backstop. We need a contingency plan. And so we will go through the process of establishing where it is that we would locate a bubble if we needed one. And then we cross our fingers and hope that we don't. Um, but at least we know it's there if we do. And, and we've been speaking with um, our counterparts at the NBA and have, have got a really good understanding of the way that they approached the bubble in Florida and um, what worked as planned and what was more of a challenge than they were expecting. And we're, we're very lucky from that point of view in terms of our timing that we've got a, a number of great leagues, both in Australia and around the world, to, to learn from. So final question on this topic, because I know we want to talk basketball, rising stars, NBA draft, but as far as safety protocols for the players, similar to what the NBA is doing? I mean, where are you with, I'm curious about testing because everybody has a, you know, everybody here in the States has a different idea of what the best form of testing is. So what, yeah. What, are you, what are you guys thinking right well, now? I guess, I guess in terms of protocols, the first thing is it's very unlikely that we would have a hard bubble like they had at Disney World. Um, in the, the biggest issue for us from a scheduling point of view is um, interstate border closures um, requiring quarantine periods. So once you're in a particular state, um, it's fairly likely that you will have reasonable freedom of movement for whatever period we were in a hub. But in terms of testing, I mean, Again, timing has been a blessing in the sense that there is now saliva testing um, kits being tested that are relatively inexpensive, far less invasive than needing a um, you know a swab from nasal passages, that kind of thing. So it could be it could be quite viable to test guys every day without it being a particular burden and without it being overly expensive. So it's a bit of a watch this space issue, um, but we'll certainly. <laughs> We'll certainly err on the side of caution and make sure that everyone's safe and, um, uh, you know, health and safety of the players and staff, but also of our fans has to remain a, a priority, of course. Got it. Sounds good. Well, hey, last five years, the NBL has really undergone, a, I would say, a renaissance uh, in terms of uh, new ownership of the league. You came on board. Uh, I think you left, you left the law. You left the law, right? You, you were a practicing lawyer. How did yeah, you? Yeah, uh, decision I ever made. <laughs> I've heard I, uh, a number of my lawyer friends have 
made career decisions like that, and I understand why. But uh, no, what what is it about basketball? I mean, what's your what's your basketball background, and how did you get involved with the NBL? Right. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a long story, I guess, but a, a pretty simple one at the same time, in the sense that. And if you look back at the heyday of the NBL prior to now, there was a period in the, uh, I guess, the mid to late 80s, early 1990s, where uh, it was at full flight. And I know you've had Andrew Gaze on recently, and, and he was every young Australian basketballer's hero when I was a kid. And uh, uh, he was really at the peak of his powers at, during that time. And um, so, so growing up as a child, I, I played um, I played until I was sort of mid to late teens. I was I was adequate at best. Um, I never had I never had prospects of being anything more. Um, but I did go on after uh, after I finished playing. I, I actually took up rowing as a sport. But during that time, I um, I continued coaching um, and and coached a bit of junior basketball and continued to follow the league very closely until about that period in the mid nineteen nineties when uh, and it's a you know, it's a long fabled history of why the NBL fell out of the mainstream during that period. Um, I, I still think that it's got a lot to do with um, the the change of uh, change of the guard in the NBA um, and also the rise and rise of the internet at around that point in time. And all of a sudden, um, the NBA was a lot more accessible in Australia than it had ever been before. Um, previously, if you were an NBA fan, you could watch one game a week here on a weekend on TV. But if you wanted to see live basketball, you had to go and see it in person in the NBL or there were a couple of games a week of NBL on TV. But really, the NBL was your local choice. Um, when the NBA became more viable to watch on a more frequent basis, or at least you could get a good amount of highlights and an update, um, that along with the retirement of guys like Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, that kind of era that had such a big following over here, I think that resulted in a real decline. And basketball in Australia up until that point had really ridden on the coattails of the growth of the NBA during that period. And it hadn't really generated its own capacity from a, a marketing, PR, innovation standpoint. And, and ironically, during that same period, that's when our big Indigenous sporting codes like the Australian Football League, AFL, as everyone knows it, the National Rugby League, NRL, cricket, they had all really picked up on the idea of tapping into grassroots sport as their next generation of fans. And they went from strength to strength and it coincided with a period when basketball was caught flat-footed. And, and that's when I stopped following the game. I um, uh, as you mentioned, I sort of got more into my academics. I, I became a lawyer. I was a, a practicing lawyer for um, a bit over a decade and was a, a partner of a, a national firm. And a very small part of my practice had to do with sport. Um, I sort of worked in mergers and acquisitions and um, private equity markets and, and capital raisings and all the rest. And that's what paid the bills. Um, but I had this lingering interest in, in sport. My father-in-law actually... Uh, did a lot of work in the sporting industry, and and he was the one who sort of piqued my industry, uh, my interest in the industry as, you know, a, a business like any other. But a lot of people didn't treat it that way. It was often, it was often, um, despite the fact it was professional sport, the the governance and the administration of it was often, 
It was still the same people. It was professional people who were running these things, but they did it almost as a hobby. And if they were, they, they would be aghast with themselves if they were treating their own businesses the same way that they were treating their sporting interests. And that's where I really started to um, find an intersection between the law and what I was doing from a corporate governance point of view and an M&A point of view and how that could intersect with sport. And, and what I also found at the time, doing a lot of work, particularly in and out of Asia, was that sport was a great tool for diplomacy. Um, it was a it was a great common vernacular. It didn't matter uh, what language you spoke. If you could sit down and enjoy a game together, and basketball is a particularly um, particularly pertinent, I guess, common language because it, along with football, soccer, one of the two global sports, really, and and doing a lot of business in China as I was at the time, I found that. A connection and an interest in basketball was opening a lot of doors that just talking about you know, mining or agribusiness or whatever it was just simply couldn't open. Um, and so it came to pass that uh, Larry Kesselman, who at the time was uh, the owner of um, the Melbourne Tigers, which was subsequently rebranded Melbourne United, um, he came to be a client largely because his CEO, a gentleman by the name of Vince Crivelli, uh, who is still the CEO of, of Melbourne United Basketball Club? He happened to be one of my first coaches when I was when I was a kid playing basketball, and and strangely enough, we bumped into each other one day because our children were going to the same kindergarten, and that's that's really how this started. Is he said, "Hey, I need some need some help at Melbourne United. We're going through a rebrand and we're trying to establish our brand equity in China." and one thing led to another and um, I ended up getting to know Larry and, and worked with him on a number of his different businesses until one day he, he came to me and said, look, I've, I've got this opportunity to acquire a majority interest in the league. And at that time, the league, a bit like the NBA, was owned in equal proportions by each of the teams. Um, and that, that didn't work. Uh, it was only eight teams at the time. Um, I think with the NBA, it works really well because with 30 teams, you've got enough owners there to form sort of factions and not everyone's voice can be heard equally. But with only with only eight teams and eight owners, each of whom were, were a pretty big deal in their own territory, everyone wanted to be the king for, for a period there. And um, no one could agree on which way was up. And as a result, there was, there was no real capacity for effective decision-making. Um, the league office at that time comprised of, I think, six people. It was operating on a budget of less than $2 million. Uh, no centralised marketing. Um, everything was just done at club land. And I think at that point, the things were pretty bleak. And the league was seriously at the point of potentially going under. This was towards... Um, this was in 2015. And, and there was every chance. I mean, even... Some of the greats of the game, like Andrew Gaze, uh, who was a director of Basketball Australia at the time, was saying, you know what, we should let the league go under, um, let, it, let it have its time sort of out of the spotlight, gather its feet under itself and try and start again. And um, that, that's when the other owners approached Larry and said, look, we're willing to, to give up a controlling interest. Um, he and I had a conversation. He said, what do you think? Is this, is this a, a good idea? You've got a bit of a basketball background. You've got a bit of a business background. What do you think? So, and, and we had a lot of common ideas as to how we thought um, the NBL could be approached differently. The fact that we were a, a, 
a good quality basketball league that really hadn't sought to take its product to, I was going to say the rest of the world, but really anywhere outside of Australia and New Zealand. And there was a massive opportunity there. Um, it needed, but it needed capital. Um, it needed the oxygen to catch fire again. And, and let's face it, in this day and age, oxygen means dollars. And needed someone who was willing to make that investment. And Larry basically said, well, I'm willing to make the investment if you're willing to come and come and run it with me. Um, so we, we did the acquisition together. I sort of spent my last month as a lawyer helping him with finalizing the acquisition and then transitioned straight out into, you know, 1st of July, 2015 into what was then the GM position for the league. One of the things uh, I want, I want to get into the league. I think, I think uh, American basketball fans, <clears throat> would be interested to know about some of the guys that have come, come to the NBL and had great success guys. They followed in college, but I want to jump ahead because this is pretty timely. Um, you and I met a couple of years ago at the, at the Nike hoop summit and you, you, you broached an idea that you had with people like myself who knew the young players in the United States about a program called next stars. And it was a way uh, as you described it, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, to entice a young man from around the world, could have been the States, could have been Brazil, for example, with uh, Didi Lozada this, this past year, who has uh, been drafted by the uh, New Orleans Pelicans. But the idea was, if you don't want to go to college, turn professional. Um, you can play in a very good league. Uh, the language is the same. You'll be around professional coaches and players. You'll develop as a player, and then hopefully you'll improve your draft stock. And uh, you have two guys, the way I look at it, and I've done my homework here, Jeremy, I, I think both players are going to go in the top 10, including RJ. I think RJ's gonna, RJ, Bar RJ Hampton's going to end up in the top 10. So take me through the idea of next stars, and then we'll get into specifically LaMelo Ball and RJ Hampton, who basically – took a chance, cast their lot with the NBL, and it looks like it's going to be a pretty good decision. So let's start with the idea of Next Stars. Okay. Well, the, the idea was something that we, we had probably, probably in 2016 was the first time that we had an idea of, hey, do, do you think we could be an attractive destination um, as an alternative to college, particularly for young Australians? How do we stop the talent drain? Um, at the time, the, there was something like 300 or 400 Australians playing college basketball, men and women. And, and what, one of the things that was really missing, and to, to this day it still remains an issue, is a bit of a gap for people who are sort of 14, 15, 16 years old, who are very, very talented athletes here in Australia, who are fantastic basketballers, but they really have two options, um, three options. There's our center of excellence for basketball, which is fantastic, but is relatively small. There's only you know 15 or so spots each year. Um, you can transition to one of the major football codes where they're really focused on development at around that age, um, or you can go and play college basketball, or you can plan to go and play college basketball in the US. Now that's where we're working very hard at present. We've got a, a minor league now essentially called the NBL one, which is seeking to address that gap. And, and we've got other plans in place, but at the time that was a real issue for us. Um, 
and, and it was kind of put on ice a little bit because we thought, right, first we've got to establish the credibility of our league and give kids a reason to aspire to play in the NBL. Um, we, we've got to walk before we can run. So we put it on ice for a little while and, and it was then a conversation with an agent that made us think about it all over again. It was um, a guy by the name of Daniel Moldovan who um, has a, a few guys in the NBA, um, including guys like Aaron Baines, um, but has a significant number of players on his books, a very significant number of players on his books here in the NBL. And, and he sort of reprised that thinking when he came and had a conversation with Larry and I. And, um, and, and we... we we polished off the idea a little bit and and it started to get legs and probably what we didn't realize was we'd come a long way in those few years um and that the the credibility of the league was such that this idea gathered momentum pretty quickly um but we needed to test it first off and and our our first test case i guess was um a guy by the name of brian bowen jr and fantastic young man head screwed on really well um but was was going to slip through the cracks in terms of not being eligible to go to college um in part or in whole because he, his father had been embroiled in some allegations uh regarding kickbacks and all the rest yes and that NCAA, was ncaa violations right that's exactly right and so Exactly. And so, yeah. so the timing of our launching of Next Stars happened to coincide and it was completely coincidental. It happened to coincide with, and in fact, I, I, uh, we announced Next Stars when I happened to be in the US at the same time that the FBI were, were announcing their investigations into a number, number of allegations in relation to the NCAA. Now, let me, and, let me, let me stop you for a second because the yeah. year before Terrence Ferguson who was not part of next stars, but essentially he might've been the test case, right? Because correct. he, Terrence Ferguson, a young man from Dallas was scheduled to go to Arizona. Um, he was not academically eligible and he had a choice of playing professionally overseas. Um, I'm not sure if he could have gone to the G league, but as it turned out, he had a very successful season with you, not necessarily stat wise, but he was good enough playing in, in the NBL that the Oklahoma city thunder drafted him in the first round. So, so that was sort of when the penny dropped for us that Next Stars could work. And the the issue with the Terence Ferguson experiment, um, it, it was a fantastic experiment, as you say. He acquitted himself well. In fact, it, when he first came over, people were expecting him to sort of take the league by storm, and that um, you know he was touted as a an NBA draft prospect. Therefore, he was going to be a superstar in the NBL. When in fact, when he came over. You know, Joey Wright and the guys at the Adelaide 36ers did a fantastic job of identifying him, contracting him, um, as any other import player would be contracted. Um, for those who don't know the system, there was a limit at the time of two imports per team, uh, or might have been in the first year that we transitioned to three imports per team. Um, and uh, when he did come over, he was probably playing five, ten minutes off the bench uh, and... It, you know, he, he looked like a kid out there. Uh, and during the course of the first half of the season, he matured dramatically. Uh, his defense improved. He found his feet in terms of the physicality of the competition. Uh, and he started to get 15, 20 minutes a game towards the back end of the season. He started a handful of games and his, his stats improved accordingly. And 
that was fantastic in demonstrating to people that playing against grown men was a, was a different kettle of fish to playing high school basketball. You weren't going to be the superstar out on court every night. You, you weren't playing against your peers and your, your um, age group. <laughs> you know, these are guys who were, who were playing to put food on the table uh, and had been doing it for a long time. And, and they were tough. They're Aussies, you know. They grew up in a, an environment where, you know, the old adage here is you go in with your head over the ball. It's, it's football terminology that you put your body on the line, you put your head over the ball, and, you know, your own dad will boo you off the court if you don't do that. Um, so so it, it proved to be a great grounding for him. The difficulty came at the end of the season um, in that the, the contracting provisions were um, a muddle. We, ha- we weren't used to... And clubs weren't used to, I shouldn't say we, because we, we didn't have anything to do with bringing Terence Ferguson to the NBL. It was, it was all due to the Adelaide 36s and due credit to them. But the paperwork um, and the red tape resulted in Terence actually missing uh, NBA Summer League um, just as a result of figuring out arrangements with buyouts and, and getting his letter of clearance from Basketball Australia and the Adelaide 36s and, you know, it, 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 it was a significant opportunity missed for Terence. And we needed to make sure that that wasn't repeated in future and, and that those sorts of administrative handlings didn't jeopardise um, the standing and credibility of the league. And so we thought, well, the best way to do this is be completely transparent. Let's have the league contract these players and work with the agent and the family and the clubs to place them in the NBL club that is going to be best suited to their needs and let's make sure that all of this administrative bureaucratic stuff is dealt with transparently and out in the open um, and with a mindset from the very beginning of making sure that these players are back in the US and have every opportunity to um, give themselves uh, as best chance as they can of getting drafted as highly as possible. Um, and let's actually make that the narrative. It's not a byproduct. That, that is the purpose. Let's not be shy about the fact that we're going to be a breeding ground for NBA talent. Let's shout it from the rafters. And so that was the major difference with, with Brian Bowen. So our test case in year one of Next Stars, contract him with a view to him playing one season and then, and then hopefully being drafted. Now, ultimately, Brian, Brian went undrafted. He had a good season with the Sydney Kings, mind you. Right. He played very well. He acquitted himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he, he um, very good mature. Defensive, good defensively, as I remember. Excellent Correct. and good energy. Played hard. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I thought um, it should have factored in, in the second round of that draft. Um, we were very disappointed for him when it didn't happen. But I think within 48 hours, he picked up a, a two-way with the Indiana Pacers, which we were really pleased with. And, and he went into the bubble recently as, as part of the roster with the Pacers, which we were you know, really pleased for Tugs. He's, he's continuing to grow and uh, we wish him the best of luck. But Tugs Bowen was, I guess, the first example of the the next stars in its true form and that it could work. And RJ Hampton was, was the first cab off the rank in terms of discussions for the following season. And, you know, we, we were pretty excited that the success of the program led to a conversation with a guy that we knew was a potential top 10 pick in year two. And we never expected that it would gain momentum that quickly. And, and one of the reasons that it did was the return to the league of, of Andrew Bogut. Um, that really shone a light on the league that, again, we perhaps weren't expecting. We, 
we had said for uh, quite a while, we want the, the NBL to be a place that uh, an Australian NBA player will return to at the end of their career proudly um, and, and happily, not as a, a last resort, but as somewhere to, that they want to come and play while they're still, you know, if not at the peak of their powers, well, it's still at least really able to contribute. Um, and we always said, you know, a guy like Andrew Bogut, if a guy who's got that much pride and a love of the game that is that strong um, actually has a desire to return to the NBL and finish his career here, that would be a sign of success. And I didn't think that it would happen um, soon enough for it to actually be Andrew Bogut. But, but it turns out that, that as circumstance transpired, you know, obviously he had a, a run of injuries, but he still had NBA offers on the table when he made the decision to return to Australia and, and play for the Sydney Kings. And as we know, he then transitioned back and played for the Warriors in their, in their finals run and, um, and then came back to the Sydney Kings straight after. You know, it's a heavy workload, but he, he did it really, really well. And it, and it shined a huge spotlight on us. And as a result, led to those discussions with RJ. Um, the RJ discussions lingered for quite a while. It probably took four or five months of conversations. Um, and RJ had the, the huge benefit of, of his father being in his camp, Rod Hampton, who had played professionally in a number of countries all around the world. And that was, um, that was actually a huge benefit for us because he knew all of the right questions to ask. Uh, he knew the pitfalls of playing in Europe and in Asia potentially. And so he hadn't played in Australia, but he knew where the potential difficulties would lie with his son playing in a, a foreign country. And so he really niggled at, I guess, the minutiae of these contracts and made sure that this was going to be the best thing for RJ ultimately. And it helped us refine our model greatly. And I think ultimately it gave confidence to other people as well that, yeah. that the, the model was going to work. And um, right. RJ surprised a lot of people here because we all thought he was about to pick a college choice. And then he decided to go with next stars. And uh, soon after, you get LaMelo Ball, who, who may have even a bigger name in the States. And it may very well be. We don't, we're not sure, but he's certainly in the running for the top pick in the NBA draft. And how, how did the experiment go? I, I watched every play of every game of both players. There were ups and downs. Uh, RJ had a different role than, than LaMelo uh, on their teams. But as you look back on it, here's, here's my question, Jeremy. Is it, is it strictly a success because these two guys will get drafted high or are there other aspects of their decisions that helped make the league better, made it, make it more visible? How would you assess the overall experiment, if you will, these yeah. two men being in next stars? Yeah. Look, the, the RJ announcement itself was a significant success for us because of the fact that he had his choice of a number of colleges. Um, he could have played pro elsewhere and he made the decision to come to the NBL. It wasn't circumstance that was forced upon him. It was a decision made at the outset. That was very significant for us. And so in, in many respects, that was a win for us before he even set foot on the court. Um, and, and as you alluded to, what it led to was guys like Lamello looking at the program as well. Um, so, so then we'll come back to his time in the league in a moment, but that was an initial success for us. Um, 
and we shouldn't discount Didi Lutzada and Terry Armstrong either, and we've talked about them also. But um, but the the next big stage, I guess, was when um, you know I was in the US and got a call to to I happened to be in San Francisco at the time and and got a phone call asking if I was interested in coming down and meeting with Lamelo and his team in in Los Angeles. Um, that he was working out in a private gym there, and hey, it's worth a conversation. And the, the first time that I met him, it became very obvious that what you see on social media is is not Lamelo Ball, the basketball player. Um, that was the Ball family um, as an entertainment product, and the two things are quite different. Um, to see him in a gym, he was he was all business. He was exceptionally mature and professional. Um, you know, w- without knowing who I was or why I was in the room, uh, he saw me talking to his, his coach and his um, uh, agent, came and introduced himself, thanked me for being there. And it was only after that that they said, hey, this is, this is Jeremy from the NBL that we mentioned. Oh, right. Nice to meet you. And I, but he made a point of going and speaking to everyone before the training session and after the training session, thanking them for being there. And he just worked his butt off the whole time that he was there against players who were in the draft that year. And, and he acquitted himself really well. And it was then that the penny dropped that, right, we're not talking about someone who happens to make great highlight reels. We're talking about a kid who really wants to be the number one draft pick in 2020. And, and he said that at the time. He said, oh, uh, I think it was his agent or it might have been Jermaine that said to him, and what, where do you think you can go in 2020? He said, oh, I, I can go number one. I want to go number one. Um, and I, I got a sense then of his commitment. Um, he, we already knew he had a huge following. Uh, and so in many respects, again, even though he was ranked number 42 at the time that he signed with us, it was a success for us before he set foot on the court because of the, um, profile and narrative that he was bringing with him. But but that success story could have gone either way. Uh, it was probably the riskier of the two propositions between RJ and Lamelo. We kind of expect, we knew what to expect from RJ. We didn't necessarily know how Lamelo was going to perform in a professional structured environment. Yes, we'd seen him play professionally in Lithuania, but it's a very different league. Um, and the expectations of him were going to be very different in the NBL to what they were in Lithuania. And, um, and so that was a success story. And then we were sort of prepared for the fact that well, he should flourish, um, and and if the structure that he's put into allow you know, is able to build around him to some ex- uh, extent, then he probably will flourish. Um, but again, he could have come up against a different kind of coach in a different team, and and it could have gone the other direction. But as we see, he went from ranked forty two to ranked number one by the halfway point of our season. Now let me ask um, you this: when, when it comes to next stars, am I am I am I correct in saying the young people who decide to be part of the program get to get to choose where they want to go? Do they get to pick a franchise and that they feel best fits maybe their skill or their ability to show what they can do? It's it's not a str- it's not quite as straightforward as that. We yep. can't force them upon any team, and we would never try to. What what we do is the NBL plays matchmaker. And we work with the GM and coach of each of the clubs who show interest. So first point of call is we say to the clubs, hey, Lamelo Ball's interested in joining the Next Stars program. Um, who thinks that 
well, who wants him and thinks that there's a spot for him in your roster? And then I, I spend some time with GM, coach, CEO, whoever it might be, talking about the nuance of whether or not there's a real opportunity for them. Then I speak with the agent and player and family and say, well, these are the teams that are interested. These are the pros and cons of those different opportunities. And, and then we make introductions and it goes through a bit of an interview process. And so it's very collaborative in terms of making sure that everyone is happy and comfortable with, with the end decision. Um, the Illawarra Hawks, which is where Mallow played his season, were an interesting fit because at the time that we were having those discussions, they hadn't yet signed a, a, a big-name point guard. They hadn't signed either of their imports. Um, I think they might have signed Josh Boone at that point. So they had a, they had a five. Um, but CAA, who were handling Lamello at the time, also happened to have Aaron Brooks on their books. There's a tongue twister. And um, the Hawks were in need of, of both a one and a two. And CAA were very conscious of um, Lamello having a bit of a mentor you know, an NBA veteran as a mentor who could help shoulder some of the pressure and, um, and know up front what he was getting into and that part of your role is to, is to mentor Lamello through this experience. And so that turned out to be a match made in heaven in the sense that the Hawks got Aaron Brooks at two. Um, normally, starting Lamello at point guard would have been a pretty risky proposition Regardless of how good he is, putting an 18-year-old as your starting point guard and expecting him to cope with those sorts of minutes um, in a professional league without having you know, spent much time with him before is, is a big risk. But it's somewhat mitigated by the fact that you've got Aaron Brooks at two who can handle the ball himself and, yeah. and can take Aaron the pressure off Lamello uh, when yeah. needed. Aaron was his co-pilot until he got hurt. He was his co-pilot, That's 100% right. right. Yeah. Until yeah. he got hurt. Until he got hurt. And, and that was a make-or-break point in... Lamello's season when, when Aaron got hurt and, you know, a lot of people were saying, Lamello is going to really have to stand up and um, lead the team. He's going to have to be the general out on court. He's going to have to handle a lot more of that scoring pressure. Uh, and that was a real test for him. And it's when we saw that um, I think the structure of the team had to evolve then as well, because it, it had to allow for Lamello's um, intuitive ability to score the ball he, he's a fantastic passer of the ball and his intuition is, is unquestionable. Um, uh, he's got it on a string, um, but whether he could score in a structured environment um, was, a, was a question mark uh, and whether he could move off the ball was, was something that um, was a question mark. And so once Aaron did his Achilles and was out for the balance of the season, um, I think Lamelo got more of a green light to be able to um, try and make his own opportunity off the dribble. And, and he went from being, a, I think, a, a pass-first point guard during that first part of the season to really being a ball-dominant scorer. So let me ask you, before we get into the Australians that are in uh, next stars, like Josh Giddy and Mojave King, this, success, this, this experiment is a success because you've got these two young men who are going to be very high draft picks. The G League seems to have kind of – looked at your model and said, well, we can't let these guys leave the country. Now, this is what I think. I'm just wondering, the G League's going to have an, an initiative for high school players to make the transition to the NBA much the way Next Stars is doing. But you see a difference between what the G League will do and what Next Stars will do. So I'm just wondering how – this is, I know, a strange year because of, of the virus and the pandemic. But going forward, how do you see the G League as, it, as compared to – 
the NBL's next stars? Yeah, I, I guess I should start by saying that we always knew that the, the NBA would respond both to next stars and also to the change in the dynamic of college basketball. Um, as, as we've seen in the last 12, 18 months, there have been machinations within the NCAA that now allow players to receive a, a degree of payment for their um, image rights and marketing rights and all the rest. So, um, th you know, there's been discussions around whether or not the NBA is still going to maintain its requirement that you have one year out of high school before you can be eligible for the draft, those sorts of things. So we knew it was a dynamic environment. We knew the NBA were likely to do something. We thought, hey, let's make the best of the opportunity while we can, and then, and then we will evolve um, with the rest of the market. And I, I think that the, the response of um, the G League and the G League Academy makes an awful lot of sense. And we've, we've had these discussions with um, Sharif Abdurrahim and Mark Tatum, and I absolutely understand the logic in them wanting to, main, wanting to establish that connection with these younger players as early as possible and maintain that line of dialogue. I do think, though, that, that the G League Academy and Nexstars are really complementary in the sense that they're quite different programs. Um, the G League Academy is, is exactly that. It's an academy where you're with an, a group of peers around the same age group and basically um, paired up with a, a group of, of mentors who are probably um, either NBA or, or G League veterans um, who, and they're going to form a squad and they're going to train for the duration of a season together and, and hone their craft and then play a, a handful of exhibition games against G League teams at the end of their, their year together. Um, what we offer is a very different experience. Uh, it, it's an opportunity to come to the other side of the world and, as I alluded to earlier, play against professionals for a full season with the goal of winning a championship. Um, you, you cannot replicate uh, that team camaraderie, the, the pressure, the adrenaline um, of actually playing to win games and win a championship. Um, and you certainly can't replicate doing it against full-grown men uh, who are trying to trying to make a living? Um, having having veterans take you under their wing and coach you in an academy environment is very different to going up against them when they're scrapping for their next contract. It, both both equally valid and both equally valuable, but to a different kind of athlete. Some athletes are going to flourish in the academy environment. Others need to test themselves. Players going from high school to college to the NBA are all unique. You can't pigeonhole them. And if you're a GM of an NBA club or a scout for an NBA club, the question mark hanging over every individual player is going to be different. And some people, in order to answer those questions, are going to be best suited to going to an academy and maybe honing their jump shot and demonstrating that they've got range or working on their fitness or, or proving that a niggling injury isn't a concern, whatever it might be. Others, and I think Lamello is the perfect example, need to demonstrate that they can fit into a professional environment, that they don't need to be the superstar every time they set foot on the court, that they can play a role because, you know, most kids coming out of high school or, or their first year of college going into the NBA they're not going to be Zion Williamson the first time that they set foot on the court. 
they're not going to be able to dominate. They're going to have to be a role player for a period of time until they until they get their head around it. And so I, I think they can be complementary. Um, as I mentioned, spoken with Sharif Abdurrahim and we're, we're on really good terms. There's not a sense of rivalry or competition. There's a sense of camaraderie of, hey, ultimately we both want the same thing. We want these guys to end up in the NBA. That's not a loss for the NBL. If, if they go to the NBA, that's a win for us. So yeah. I'm confident we can work together. Well, speaking, speaking of, of that, you've got two young men that are now in Next Stars who are homegrown. Um, mm. They may not be familiar to American basketball fans. They will be in the next couple of years. Mojave right. King, Josh Giddy. What are your expectations for them? Uh, not just as far as how they'll do this season in the NBL, but also do you anticipate that these young men will be good enough to be drafted fairly quickly by the NBA? Yeah, because- absolutely. Because of the NBL? Absolutely. So, so let's take each of them in turn. Well, actually, let's start with those, those elements that are common to both of them. They were both at the, the NBA's Global Academy, um, based, which is, for, for those of you listeners who don't know, the NBA has academies based around the world for people from that particular part of the world to attend and cultivate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a fantastic initiative by the NBA and one which we're, we, we only wish we could replicate. But for those people who show real talent but who don't have an academy in their home country or region, they're sent to a global academy. And that global academy is, is based in Canberra here in Australia. It's at the Australian Institute of Sport. Um, and its sister program is, uh, is called the Centre of Excellence. It's Basketball Australia's Centre of Excellence. And each of them have, I think it's either 12 or 15 kids and they essentially form two squads who have very similar or if not the same curriculum, and they often scrimmage against one another. And as you know, Fran, from Australia's centre of excellence, there have been some pretty significant names that have gone on to play very strong careers in, in the NBA and in the NBL. Um, and, and equally, the Global Academy is proving to be uh, the NBA's equivalent proving ground. And um, both of, of Josh and Mo went through the, the Global Academy and at that point in time, they had some decisions to make in terms of whether or not they go to college um, or pl- play pro ball. Mojave King is a fantastic athlete. Um, he had a fantastic basketball without borders uh, in um, in the US during or just uh, yeah during All Star the most recent All Star weekend, um, and certainly popped up on a lot of NBA teams' radars as a result of his his performance there. Uh, I think he has potential to be an NBA player, no doubt. He's a, um, I should point out too that because they're not American, they don't have to nominate for the draft or they're not automatically nominated for the draft their first year out of high school. So if they want to, they can play two years in the NBL. And so we've left that flexibility open for them as to when they nominate. I think both Mo and Josh have the ability to nominate for the 2021 draft, but similarly, they have flexibility. Um, so, so Mo, I think people are people equate his style of game to the NBA probably more readily than when they look at Josh's natural game. But, but Josh has something about him as well. He's got an incredibly high basketball IQ. Um, his dad, for those who don't know, was a... Um, an NBL stalwart back in the day. Uh, I mentioned the head over the ball mentality. Uh, that was his dad down to a T, Warwick Giddy. 
Um, he used to frustrate the hell out of the opposition, hard-nosed defender. Um, I, I, I tell you, his, his son, Josh, is probably a more elegant, prettier basketballer than, than Warwick was. But but Josh has a lot of Joe Ingles about him when I, when I see him. He's a um, he's long. He's he's a lovely shooter of the ball, but he he's just got this amazing basketball IQ that I think will continue to develop. And he's just got this. Um, I, I would say he's got a long term talent. Uh, he's got a lot of upside, and it's probably not as obvious as seeing Mo King go out there who who runs and jumps like a gazelle. Um, Josh's talent is is different, um, but he's had some amazing performances at FIBA under 19s um, when he played for the the NBA Global Academy in um, is it in Spain in Barcelona at the Torneo uh, right. where he won yeah. he played where really he won well. MVP yeah his yeah. um yep. uh, his basketball without borders performance wasn't as strong as Mo King's um, and so. That's unfortunate because so many of the NBA scouts are there at the time. But ne- next stars for the two of them, I think they're going to come out and surprise a lot of people in terms of what it is that they're capable of doing. And and the really exciting thing about having had guys like Lamelo and RJ in the NBL this season is they're going to be able to draw direct comparisons to Josh and Mojave. And they're going to be able to say, well, if Lamelo could cut it as a top three draft pick and and Josh or Mo are putting up numbers that are comparable, then you know we're, hopefully we're doing our bit in terms of helping them make it in the, into the NBA. Given, given what they're about to do and given jo- Josh Green is likely to be a, either a, mm-hmm. he'll be a top 40 pick, maybe first rounder mm-hmm. for sure. Where, mm-hmm. is, uh, where is Australian grassroots basketball right now? How do you see it evolving uh, over the last uh, you know, five or ten years? It, it's prolific. Um, yeah. The talent coming through the ranks is really, really exciting. And uh, um, when when we first met, actually, I think that was when Josh was going through um, things like Hoop Summit as well. And uh, and at the, at the time, I was I was very, very keen that he would be a part of this Next Stars program. And ultimately, he decided to go to college, and he, he performed well. And um, you know, he he was at the IMG Academy prior to that. Uh, he's a lovely kid from a great family, and I'm really excited about seeing him go hopefully in the first round this year. But there's a lot of Josh Greens in the making over here, I could tell you. Um, Australian grassroots basketball is continuing to go from strength to strength, and we're working very hard with Basketball Australia on continuing to develop that pathway from junior ranks through to the NBL. And uh, I mentioned earlier, we've now got the NBL 1, uh, a national um, sort of second tier competition. Uh, we're working on a, and that plays in the NBL off season. Um, continue to watch this space, so because we're we're looking to establish a second tier competition that will um, play in concurrently with the NBL, um, similar to a G League type concept. Um, we're looking at further academy opportunities for young Australian talent and the talent from the region more generally. It's a hugely exciting time for our sport here in Australia. And now that the NBL is, is back in the spotlight, um, more and more young Australians are considering professional basketball as a viable career. You mentioned this earlier, but uh, just this week I read where Joe Ingles would like to finish his basketball career back home. How, how realistic is it for Joe, Patty Mills, Della Vadova, maybe on that back end to say, hey, you know what? 
I'm going to come back. I had a great career in the NBA. I'm going to come back and help help Australia and play in the NBL for a year or two. Look, I think it's incredibly realistic. And in fact, you know, Andrew Bogut has proven that it's realistic. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, time marches on for all of us and, and these guys can't stay young and at the peak of their game forever. Um, there will be a time at which the NBA is no longer an option for them, um, at which time their, their experience um, will still count for a hell of a lot. If they want to come and play a couple of seasons in the NBL, um, they're still, they're still going to be competitive and there's no replacing basketball IQ. And, um, you know, the, the, let's not kid ourselves, the athleticism um, of the NBA is not what it is here in the NBL. It's a different kind of basketball. Uh, it's tough and it's, it's more about um, strategy and decision-making and all the rest. There's a lot of different factors and they will, their careers will extend a little bit longer here. The, their shelf life, I guess, is longer in Australia than it will be in the NBA. And they, they will really be able to contribute. Unless you're playing against Damian Martin every night and he's retired. There you go. I think, I think the fact that Damo's now retired probably makes it more attractive for someone like Elliot Patty to come back and, and not have him in your grill every night. One of the toughest players in the NBL over his career, Unbelievable. no doubt. Uh, Unbelievable. Well, hey, it was a great, great honor being able to, um, after his retirement, being able to, to tell him personally that we're going to be naming the Defensive Player of the Year award after him from now on. Um, I did, a much I did deserved see that. honor. And uh, uh, yeah, it's going to be a, a real treat to hand that over. This is great, Jeremy. Uh, those of us who love basketball around the world, we're following the NBL. We know about the talent. We know about the professionalism that that uh, you have brought to uh, to the league in the last five years. And uh, certainly Next Stars is a big step. You're going to be ready uh, draft night, I'm sure, to uh, see which way everything falls for R.J. Hampton and LaMelo Ball. I'm sure you'll be excited about that. Absolutely. November 18, it's slated in for the moment. It happens to coincide with my birthday, so I'm hoping that's, <laughs> uh, that, that's fortuitous and auspicious and that, uh, you know, certainly hoping the best for, um, for LaMelo, for R.J. Terry Armstrong, uh, for Terry that matter. Armstrong, and, yep. um, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed and wish them the very best of luck. Well, when you see my, our friend uh, uh, Andrew Gay, send, send him my best. I absolutely will do, Fran. Thanks again for your time and then for your continued interest and support. Thanks, Jeremy. Look forward to catching up with you soon. Take care. Well, that was Jeremy Lauger, the NBL commissioner, the, uh, the gentleman in charge of the, uh, the Pro League in Australia, and he's done a great job. Uh, High-level basketball, very professional, and obviously, as he talked about, some terrific young talent coming out of Australia. And just to remind you, we're just a couple more weeks away from the NBA draft and LaMelo Ball, RJ Barrett and Josh Green all could and should be first round picks. So uh, the Aussies, uh, my buddy, Chris Tyler, who's with me, uh, you'll be well represented on draft night. It's all we like. Tyler. Absolutely. I will love the draft regardless of how many Australians are going yeah. to be involved, but the fact that we're going to have three players with Australian connections hopefully going in the first round, that's must-watch television for me. Yeah, and by the way, Jermaine Jackson, if you're listening out there, the agent for LaMelo Ball, come on the show, man, and let's talk LaMelo Ball, pump him up. Come on. It's, uh, we'd love to have him on, but we've already had we've already had uh, Nico Mannion, and we may have a couple other surprises for you before draft night. So uh, anyway, stay tuned. But uh, 
So once again, if you like what we're doing, give us a, give us a shout out and subscribe on the various podcast outlets that you can find us and uh, give us high marks. The bosses like that. And that means we get to continue the show. So um, we really, we really appreciate that. And uh, by the way, a lot of good information today. And you, as you know, every week, I am going to bring you to another place in my world of basketball. <laughs>